What is the scariest situation in medical aesthetics? A vascular occlusion that's led to necrosis with an angry patient who knows you could have done more. That's what this show is about, how to avoid this situation, and it is definitely avoidable. This week, I'm going to be answering questions on this topic and helping you move forward and build your practice and not be constantly afraid of vascular occlusions. This is one situation that you can avoid and control. Let's dive in and start with prevention. First question was, what needle size is the safest to reduce the risk of vascular occlusion? Now, the truth is, you can cause a vascular occlusion with any size instrument, but the larger the instrument, the fewer vessels it can fit into. So this mainly applies actually when injecting with cannulas. If you want to use a bigger cannula, you probably reduce the risk of getting into many of the smaller vessels. In terms of needles, I don't believe it makes a huge difference. Most of the named arteries are going to be much wider than a typical needle. So the width of a typical needle is about 0.1 millimeters. And even the smallest of the named arteries in your face are about eight to 10 times bigger than that. So all of these needles can fit into all vessels. Now, could you fit into some slightly smaller vessels with a smaller needle? Yes, you probably can. I think once they're beyond a certain size, and this is just my mental model of how these things work, it's quite hard to push a lot of product into a very small vessel. If you've ever tried to actually inject a patient you know, with medication or if you do sclerotherapy, you'll understand that there's a limit to what vessels will take when they're small and it kind of squidges out, particularly with a thicker product. Remember that Puselli's law, the resistance along a tube, the length of the tube and the diameter make resistance much higher in small vessels. So it's not easy for a normal filler to flow through a very small vessel. I suspect that most of the big vascular occlusions happen in larger rather than very tiny vessels. So I don't think it makes a big difference to risk using, for example, a 31 gauge versus a 27 gauge, even though in theory you could fit that needle into some smaller vessels. I don't think it ends up with bigger vascular occlusions. So is there any kind of technique that you should avoid in high-risk areas? Yes, absolutely. If you think about what makes an injection high-risk, it's both the location and the volume of injection. So if you're injecting somewhere, particularly in the upper face, but using high volumes in short periods of time, that is the most likely way you can end up with a very bad vascular occlusion. I'm talking vision loss or stroke. So we must think around reducing the volume injected in each high-risk area, but also doing it in a way that decreases the frequency if we can. Like I've spoken about on other videos, there is a bit of tension between frequency of risk and severity of risk, but I would choose avoiding severity and increasing frequency if I'm injecting in a high-risk area. So that means small amounts with lots of checks in between. The five-minute nose job is probably the most succinct version of a high-risk injection you could describe because we're talking about doing larger volumes in smaller periods of time. So we must separate that out, make a 55-minute nose job out of it, and make sure that you're, in, you're validating safety and normal capillary refill between each injection. So what makes the glabella region more high-risk? So this is all down to blood supply. So the Face is supplied essentially by two arteries. You've got your internal carotid supply and your external carotid supply. So the internal carotid supplies the brain and the eyes, and in particular, it branches off as the ophthalmic artery to supply the supratrochlear, supraorbital, and lacrimal arteries. So anywhere in the upper face is much closer to that important blood supply. So if you inject a large enough bolus, particularly in the upper face and the labella, where most of these arteries are actually biggest and most central, 
then you have the highest risk chance of causing something like a stroke or blindness. It's all about this area here and the proximity to those big vessels that supply the brain that makes it a particularly high risk area. I think there's also one other thing about the glabella, which is something around the connective tissue, which makes compression necrosis of the capillaries more likely. So if you look on most of your dermal filler packets, it will describe in the product literature that the product is contraindicated in the glabella. And that is partly down to the risk of the arteries, but I also think there's a different kind of necrotic injury caused by compression of the capillaries that causes a kind of linear necrosis directly underneath, underneath the crease. So if you inject a frown line with a thick product, you can get a line of necrotic injury that's just caused by compression of the capillaries. It doesn't seem to follow the shape of an artery, and it does follow the shape of the filler, and I've seen a couple of those in my time. So I think that's the additional risk with the glabella, aside from the fact that you have the supertrochlear, supraorbital arteries running very close to where we often inject. The next question was, what are my thoughts on using non-reversible dermal fillers? So the way I think about risk with patients is we need to justify any additional risk. So if you're going to use a product that is high risk and anything that's not dissolvable is definitely high risk, you should have a clear indication for that being the better product. Typically for me, this might be an intolerance to hyaluronic acid. So if someone has had a delayed onset nodule twice, maybe with the same product, I've had one patient like that over five years separately in different clinics, it became obvious that we needed to do something very different. There is that famous Einstein quote that if you do the same thing and expect different results, that's the definition of insanity. So one of the simple rules you can apply in your practice is to always change a variable if someone's had a problem to reduce the risk of the same thing happening again. And that is one of the situations where I might use something like Radies, uh, calcium hydroxyapatite dermal filler, uh, instead of a hyaluronic acid, is if I know that there was a problem with the hyaluronic acid. So, and that may not necessarily be a reaction, it could be an aesthetic result that you're trying to achieve. So there are indications for non-reversible, but for me, that does put more pressure on me to make sure that this is in the patient's best interest, that the aesthetic result is definitely going to make them psychosocially more healthy and generate a result that I can't do with a safer product. And that is the only reason I would use non-reversible products. So in 99% of my procedures, I would choose hyaluronic acid because I can easily dissolve it. At least you can potentially dissolve it in most situations. So what do you do if you do have a vascular occlusion with a non-reversible product? So many of the manufacturers will recommend certain protocols. So many of them actually recommend using hyaluronidase, for example. There are other compounds that people inject as well. The problem is there's very little, in fact, I would say no evidence that you can actually dissolve a product efficiently enough to prevent a necrotic injury if you had a vascular occlusion. So we end up in a situation where you've probably got a blocked blood vessel to some degree, and we're trying to improve that as much as possible. So you can inject these various things, you can do the massaging, maybe you'll open up a little bit of blood flow, uh, you can give them Viagra, you can put them in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, and all of those things might decrease the size of the injury or maybe even contribute to there being no injury, but it's much, much less certain than a dissolving agent that actually breaks down the product into essentially tiny monomers of sugar, which is what hyaluronidase does. So for this reason, you should be prepared for a protocol if you're going to use a non-reversible product so that you know what to do to chip away at the risk, but it's, you, I think it's 100 times less likely, just using that as a figure of speech, that you'll actually get that product out in time to prevent necrosis, given what I've learned so far about treating non-reversible fillers in the case of vascular occlusion. Someone noticed on a previous video that I was injecting a patient who had a scar on her lip, and she had learned not to inject patients, particularly if they have a scar in an area that you're injecting, because there is an increase in risk. So what is my justification for treating a patient with a scar? 
So this is where the way I think through risk uh, is sometimes different to other people. I think everything is relative. There's no black and white risk. You will often hear injectors give black and white answers. For example, you don't need to aspirate in the middle of the face because the arteries never run in the midline. I don't think never is a good word to use in medical aesthetics. There are always exceptions. And I use that on both ends of the risk spectrum. So there may be a potentially higher risk with someone, for example, who'd had a surgical rhinoplasty, but that doesn't mean you should never treat them. There are times when you can assess the patient and see where the vessels are, make a decision that the risk is, is maybe slightly higher, but not so high as to not justify the difference you can make for them. And this is how I make many of my decisions. So in terms of injecting a scar around a lip, if it's a simple scar, I don't think there's that much difference in risk compared with other areas. So the, the anatomy might be different, but you can do a lot to assess individual anatomy without knowing what's actually going on. One thing that's really simple is just to test the depth of your needle. So elevate the needle if you're injecting a lip and see if you can see the shape of that needle. Because what we're really looking for is a needle inside a labial artery. And that's going to move and look different to what happens when you're in, in a superficial plane of the lip. You can do a little depth check and you can see that, sh that that needle is in a place that's unlikely to cause a vascular occlusion. That's the kind of thinking that I'm doing while I'm injecting. Of course, you can also do small injections at a time. You can assess in between injections. You can aspirate more often. You could use an ultrasound before you start injecting. And all of those things might enable you to step into an area that might be seen as a high risk, but to do it in such a way that makes it a justifiable risk. Next question was around surgical rhinoplasty and whether that is a contraindication to doing non-surgical rhinoplasty. Now the problem with surgical rhinoplasty is the more often the nose has been operated on, the more scar tissue is present, the anatomy might be changed. Sometimes they even tie off certain vessels. So I've heard that the columella artery is sometimes tied off in a surgical rhinoplasty, so you have less blood into the area in the first place. You may then have adhesions that mean there's actually very little room for filler to expand and to reshape the nose without compressing capillaries. And for me, this is the big risk is that if you have an area that's full of scar tissue and you inject a large volume of product, you will likely compress the vessels in that area. Maybe not the big vessels, although you could compress them too, but certainly the capillaries, I think, are easier to compress. So what I would suggest that you do, and what I always do, no matter who I'm injecting, because this can also happen with patients who've never had surgery, is that you assess the amount of room in the nose before you start injecting. So palpate the nose, feel for a potential space. What you're looking for as a good indication would be a relatively soft nose that's easy to move, that you can actually feel a potential space inside. Someone whose skin feels quite tightly adhered or just simply that there isn't a lot of room for movement might make you much more cautious as you add volume so that you're assessing in between each injection and making sure that blood flow is normal and maybe not chasing that aesthetic result at the expense of the, the amount of pressure that you might be creating as you inject. So if you do have a vascular occlusion, the next question was, will the pain be near the injection site? So this, I suspect, is highly variable. And one thing that might help you understand why this could be so different is how far filler might travel when you're injecting, depending on how you inject from the injection site, if it's all in a vessel. Now, you can do the maths on this. It's quite simple. The the amount of volume it takes to block an artery is very, very small. So you can block a, an artery like the superior labial artery with less than 0.05 mils of product. So it doesn't take a high volume, which means if you do inject quite a lot, it might travel a fair distance in that artery and cause pain higher up. The other component of this is what is actually causing the pain. It could be filler 
in the artery or it could simply be the pressure or a spasm within that vessel caused by the trauma that triggers pain in a different position or it could be the nerves associated with that vessel. So it's not always the area of necrosis, especially immediately after injection that is causing the pain. It could be anywhere. So I would take that pain as a global indication of risk and then I would go down to assess in more detail to try and establish where the lack of blood flow was. In this next question, the clinician asks, after having a hematoma in one of her first patients, she realized she could not rely on the CRT time. And this is correct because a hematoma increases the pressure in the skin, which decreases capillary refill time. So it does make it harder to assess whether or not you have a, restri a restriction in blood flow. And this has then knocked her confidence going forwards because we do like to rely on capillary refill time. Now, the, the cure for this is to start assessing capillary refill even more than you currently do because you can assess capillary refill throughout an, an entire procedure while a hematoma is developing and actually see what it does over time. So what I always suggest is the moment you see one of those little gushes, so when blood's coming out quite quickly, you immediately compress the area and don't lift up for at least a minute because this might be one of the few times you can actually assess capillary refill time without blood blocking your view. So for the first minute, I just hold it to try and give the vessels a chance to compress and for the bleeding to stop. And then as soon as I think that it may have clotted, I will lift up and look very closely to see what the refill time is. If it's normal, I will still go back and hold it, probably another 30 seconds if it was a big enough, uh, big enough bleeder. And I will make a note, at least mentally, or jot it down in the notes, that your patient had a normal capillary refill time immediately after the injection. I will then assess that area multiple times after the process, and I will, when I've sent them home, I will document all the times that it was normal, because what actually happens with most hematomas is it's the 6 to 12 hour point, maybe 24 hours later, where there's a delay in capillary refill with a really big hematoma. Now that situation, alongside a documented history of normal capillary refill straight after the procedure, is much easier to, to say is just a hematoma versus a vascular occlusion, because we have some data to say the blood flow was normal after the procedure. At the 24 hour point, a hematoma should also not be painful. So we're now using mixture of signs and symptoms to decide what the problem is and a hematoma at 24 hours is tender when you push it but it shouldn't be causing a burning aching painful sensation which might go with necro a necrotic injury which is developing so so these two elements need to be taken together we need to assess the blood flow immediately after the procedure and then interpret delayed capillary refill within that context so that you can differentiate what is just a hematoma and what is actually a vascular occlusion Having said all of that, I do think there's something to be said, particularly if the capillary refill is kind of more than three, four seconds, that you've got it, you may just be better off reversing it just to be sure in situations where you're, where you're not confident. Now, this is partly because under-treatment, I believe, is worse than over-treatment. Of course, there are risks with any procedure, but a new injector, there are probably a lot of people reversing hematomas as if they're vascular occlusions but that's probably better than not treating a vascular occlusion because you're hoping it's a hematoma. How likely is it that necrotic injury could be avoided using just simple measures like a massage and warm compress rather than hyaluron days? I think this is potentially possible with a very low viscosity product. If you could massage it, you might be able to create enough space in the vessels by moving it through the vessels that you could restore some blood flow. But this is very, very theoretical. I suppose it's all theoretical in many ways because the evidence of even hyaluronidase preventing necrosis is quite hard to get because they're all so different. So, but 
I would definitely reserve that for situations that you are, really have no other option. I would certainly never recommend that the first course of action is to try and massage, use a warm compress if you also have the option of using hyaluronidase. So this is for maybe people who have a documented history of allergy to hyaluronidase or uh, if it's a non-reversible product, you do all those other me measures. And I do think they make a difference. I think enough time, pressure, warm compress, massaging, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, sildenafil or Viagra, all of those things will probably shrink the area affected and you should do them if you can't use the reversal agent. Um, but I certainly wouldn't You have that as my first course of action. Will a vascular occlusion always be cold or can it be warm? How good of an indicator is temperature? Uh, I think temperature is a rather poor indicator in the early stages. So the, the best indication is capillary refill time. But as time goes on, it might become easier to use temperature as a gauge. But this is probably going to be most significant in very large vascular occlusions where you probably don't need it. A small vascular occlusion is not going to be easy to detect being a different temperature to the surrounding tissue because there's usually enough blood flow that you're going to get some warmth even just through the deep vessels and the rest. It, it just simply isn't as easy to demarcate. So I think temperature is a, a, a poor indication of whether or not there's a vascular occlusion and I wouldn't really use it. How long does it take from vascular occlusion to skin necrosis? So this has been studied in many different ways in animal models, which unfortunately have a very different metabolism to humans, but also in humans who have lost limbs and how long does their tissue last before you can no longer reattach, for example, a severed finger. And it, it seems to start around the eight-hour point where you can no longer reverse necrotic injury. So if you sew a finger back on, restore the blood flow at eight hours, you're on the limit of what's, what's likely to actually save that finger. Now, the problem with vascular occlusion is they're seldom 100% and we have collaterals that supply the tissue. And so it's not as black and white as that. And there may be instances where it's well worth being relatively aggressive with the reversal, even 24 hours post, 36 hours post, it's probably still better to dissolve that product and at least encourage the healing process a bit sooner than it would be to uh, simply say, well, it's too late, there's nothing else we can do. So we often end up treating them even though you may be beyond what you think the tissue is likely to survive because vascular occlusions are all different. They're all potentially partial and certainly in certain aspects of them because collaterals can supply certain areas. There may be some blood flow, even though it's not fully blocked. And all of this makes it hard to be black and white with it. But I'd say as a rule of thumb, your maximum chance of avoiding injuries within the first eight hours, preferably the first two hours. But even if you've missed that, you can still add benefit to your patient. If you take one thing from this video, please take home the message that you have levers to pull that make you safer. Pull all the levers and you will be safer. You are actually in control of a huge amount of the risk. Just think about all the ways you can make sure that vascular occlusions, if they do happen, are small. And if they do happen, that you diagnose them immediately rather than 24 hours later. And if you diagnose them, that you're prepared to treat them with enough product to actually diagnose and treat and reverse the, the VO and that you treat them holistically. So we're not just dissolving the area that you injected, but make sure you've mapped out the area and you do a proper reversal. And I recommend that you are networked with your local clinicians so that if you do have a big vascular occlusion that you know who you can call on to get an extra amount of hyaluronidase. Uh, these kind of things, 
in the very rare occurrences that they do happen, make a very big difference. So be networked, be connected, be educated, and systematize your safety process, and you'll have a very low risk of vascular occlusion. I'll share one interesting fact. I've been asking clinicians for years uh, what their total vascular occlusion risk has been over their careers, and I know of one injector who's been injecting 35 years with zero occlusions, quite a few around the 15 to 20-year mark with zero occlusions. And this is just to say out loud that if you apply this stuff, you can go decades without vascular occlusion. For me, it was 10 years before I had one. So don't lose heart. I don't want anyone watching this to not want to inject. I just want you to inject more safely. Hope that helps. Good luck. <laughs>